0: Hello and welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Greg Bashel, CEO of Queensland Sugar Limited. Say! Welcome to another episode of the Arate Podcast. It's great to have you along. For those who haven't listened before, let me briefly introduce myself and the Arate podcast to you. Uh, I'm the owner of Arate Executive, which at the time of this recording is uh, almost seven years old. We are based in Brisbane, but we work for our clients nationally recruiting CEOs, senior executives, and non-executive directors. And we offer a range of recruitment solutions which are significantly more affordable than traditional executive search. So I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to anybody that may have any requirements within their business either now or in the future. The Arate podcast was created to allow me the opportunity to interview some senior people within the Australian business community to enable those who have aspirations to accelerate their career to their fullest potential, to listen to those who have walked the path before them and potentially pick up some great ideas that they can apply themselves. And so over the course of this podcast, I'll be bringing a wide variety of people to you, including today's guest, Greg Bichelle. So let me introduce Greg to you now before we get into the conversation. Greg Bichelle is the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Queensland Sugar Limited. Greg joined QSL in June 2000. Prior to being appointed as their Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer in February 2012, Greg was responsible for QSL's operations including port terminal management, capital and maintenance management, shipping operations, chartering and trade finance. Before joining QSL, Greg spent seven years with CSR in a range of roles including operations, sugar marketing, hedging and trading. He has extensive experience in sugar refining and a strong understanding of customer perspectives and requirements. Greg has a Bachelor of Chemical Engineering with Honours and is also a graduate of the Australian Graduate School of Management's MBA Executive Program. He's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Greg's married and he has two teenage boys and uh, in his leisure time enjoys a wide variety of sports, both watching and playing. Enjoy this conversation with Greg Bichel. So Greg, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to uh, have a chat to us on the Arate podcast. Uh, for those people who aren't familiar with uh, QSL, maybe just uh, set the scene by telling us a little bit about uh, Queensland Sugar Limited and, and your role here, please.
1: Oh, thank you, it's my pleasure to join you. Uh, it's QSL's a uh, marketing and logistics company. We export around 3 million tonnes of sugar per year. Uh, just to give you, a bit of perspective it's worth about 1.5 billion dollars depending on the sugar price okay and we operate six ports up and down the coast Mm -hmm. where we export sugar from we can store about uh, half the total sugar crop you know about two two and a half million tons of storage warehousing and the reason we do that is most sugar is produced in the southern hemisphere in the world Mm and it's all produced in the second half of the year. Right. So if you store it and sell it later on, you get a better price.
0: Right, okay, sure. And, uh, and so as the, uh, the CEO here, give us a, a bit of a view of the, uh, the breadth of your responsibility in terms of headcount and, and those kind of things. Uh,
1: QSL doesn't have a lot of staff, we've got about 160, so for a $1.6 billion company it's a fair bit of financial responsibility per employee. Absolutely. Uh, We're an industry owned company, Uh, it's a private company limited by guarantee. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're owned 50% by sugar millers and 50% by sugar growers, Okay. Uh, and we effectively sell the sugar. put it through our logistics system, take our costs out and then pay whatever money's left over as a sugar price okay. to the industry. Yep. Of course, it's a bit more complicated than that. Sure. There's a whole lot of uh, complicated hedging uh, instruments that we allow our members to use, uh, depending on their view of the market and what risk management they want to take around their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of tools they can use around setting the sugar price and the foreign exchange rate for their sugar exports.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay great and uh, and so the purpose of the Arite podcast is really uh, for uh, people who are in the broader um, business community who are aspiring to the role of CEO or non-executive director to really uh, Get the opportunity to listen for, to some people who have uh, walked that path before them, and get some insights into their career and uh, key achievements, uh, key milestones, etc. How I like to start is just really taking it right back to the beginning by having a bit of a chat about, you know, your young life and your family, your parents and brothers and sisters, and and uh, uh, you know those early years of your life. So why don't we start there? Yeah, well, that was a while ago. My. <laughs> formative
1: years was spent in a country town in new south wales and i'm from a beef cattle farm okay. originally yeah uh, fourth generation my brother's working on the farm with my dad now mm-hmm. uh, which makes him very happy uh and i really enjoyed that it was a, a different perspective on life than i have today that's for sure. sure but um you know they form you your early years and i was a country boy i liked horse riding and um was into, um, you know, thought I might do something in the agricultural space mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and yeah, it was a really great way to grow up in a country property, um, you know, not too close to town.
0: And, How big was the town?
1: Uh, it was about 2,000 people, a little okay. place called Maruya. Okay, All right. Yeah, small high school. Um,
0: and it's on the coast in southern New South Wales. Right. And so one brother working on the uh, the farm. Any other brothers or sisters? Yeah, i
1: got uh, two other brothers and
0: a sister.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I've got one on the farm. Uh, one guy's a petroleum engineer. He works right. for Chevron and my sister's a schoolteacher.
0: Okay. And what number are you out
1: of five? I'm number one out of four, sorry. I'm oh, number yeah. one out of four, beg yeah. your pardon.
0: Right, okay. Uh, interesting. Do you think that there's any... Uh, Validity to you know those studies about number one having to be the high achiever etc.
1: Ah, uh, I haven't really thought about that. I, I think it does, um, particularly in your early years, it makes a difference as to what number you are. Sure. I, I, I used to make a lot of observations to my parents about my younger sister getting a whole lot of different treatment to what I got <laughs> as as the oldest guy. Yeah. Uh, I think it probably makes more of a difference in your earlier years than in your later years sure. certainly for me
0: okay and mum worked on the farm too or
1: uh, she was a um, she had an admin job at the local Catholic school right uh, and she used to help out um, with Saint Vincent de Paul and okay. things like that in the okay. local community and she worked on the farm as well doing right. um, as a lot of farm wives do you know invoicing and. Sure books and that sort of stuff. Yep,
0: yeah, a busy lady. Yes. Okay, and so a uh, uh, primary and high school in the town?
1: Yeah, I went to the local schools um, throughout my primary and high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say the academic standard wasn't hugely strong, but sure. you know I learnt what I needed to know there. Uh, I think um, one of the observations I made is in that type of environment, you have to be a self-starter. hmm uh, you know, if you don't do your homework, it wasn't quite the big deal that it is for my kids today. Sure. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I think one of the benefits I got out of that environment is I had to be a self-starter.
0: Right, okay. And no doubt, while you were growing up, uh, there would have been plenty of chores on the farm uh, to do around school hours, etc.
1: Yeah, well, my dad would probably tell you I didn't do all of them, but um, <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed
0: that. Okay. Uh, I, I
1: enjoyed farm life, Um you know, I, was, I wasn't really busy with schoolwork. Yep. You know, I was more focused on other things, mm-hmm. you know, sport, hobbies, sure. farm work,
0: family, okay. friends,
1: those type of things.
0: Yep. And uh, you went through high school all the way to grade 12 or the equivalent there? Yes, yeah. And, and then what happened from there?
1: Uh, so I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I wanted to go to university and see if that what that was like and mm-hmm. whether I was capable of finishing a degree or not right I was good at maths and science and uh, chemical engineering appealed to me I didn't quite know what it was but it was something I was good at and I enjoyed maths and science and particularly chemistry so right. I thought I'd give it a go
0: and whereabouts was that
1: at the University of New South Wales right in Sydney
0: yeah. okay so you had to uh leave the farm <laughs> and head to the big smoke
1: yes that's right
0: and uh and when you were studying at uni um uh, were you working at the same time or did you work? I, I did
1: some part-time work, uh, you know, labouring on building sites, okay. picking up rubbish, painting, you know, counting cars I think was a job that okay. I did. So, right. yeah, I had, had some part-time work while I was going through uni, but I was supported by my family. I right. did Earn enough money to support all my living expenses while I was at campus or
0: uh, share with Uh, some mates? I lived
1: on campus for a year and then uh, the last three years I was in share houses with friends, it's right. a really great experience, probably sure. the best time of my life, some of those uh, experiences I've had, sure. probably not suitable for going into in too much detail no, here. Enough. But um, uh, yeah. No
0: worries. And so um, uh, and so, once you finished your uh, Bachelor of Chemical Engineering, I know you did honours, so that's an extra year, isn't it?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't. It was a four-year degree, and depending on your mark, you got awarded an right. honours degree. Oh, I fine. just scraped in there for okay. honours, right. uh, so I was happy with that. Uh, And then I worked at the university for a year, I was working on a research project Mm -hmm. um, looking at um, gas stoves and gas hot water systems and how they could be made um, more efficient and um, uh, less polluting. There was a problem at the time, you might recall, where there was um, some carbon monoxide poisoning happening from instant uh, hot water gas systems. Right. You know flats and small houses typically had these things and there was a couple of deaths around that so uh agl put some money into a research project Mm -hmm. and you know i was one of the lackeys working on that and i did some tutoring okay at the university as well so i've had two jobs at the university for about a year
0: and were you an aspiring academic at that stage or not really Uh, i
1: thought i was to start with but um I worked out later on it wasn't quite lighting my fire as much as other things might. Uh, so whilst I enjoyed it and it was very challenging and interesting, uh, I wanted to join a, a company, yep. a bigger company, okay, uh, and use the skills that I'd learnt in my degree. And I wanted to run a big factory. Mm-hmm. That was my aspiration at right. the time.
0: Yeah. So that uh, so when you um, looked out at the market and was that really for you job of choice, uh, um, eventually running a factory or did you even at that time think that you had it in you to uh, potentially be a CEO in the future?
1: Uh, I didn't think I had it in me, to be honest. Uh, You know, I I lacked quite a bit of confidence at that time. I was confident about my technical skills Mm -hmm. because I'd got a lot of affirmation about that as I'd gone through university. Mm -hmm. And then by being asked to stay on and work on a research project, I I drew some confidence from that. Uh, Frankly, I thought the commercial world was something that, you know, I didn't understand and didn't have enough qualifications to understand. So I was really focused on the technical aspect of my mm-hmm. job and operationally running a factory mm-hmm. rather than, you know, looking after the P&L or mm-hmm. anything like that.
0: Okay. And, uh, you know, what sort of factory would have been sexy to you back then, you know, if you uh, had to look at a particular organisation and say, yep, that's my uh, in my dream organisation. What lit your fire then?
1: Uh, at the time when I went through university, there was still a couple of cadets around, so mm-hmm. big companies sponsored um, people to go through university, and mm-hmm. I always thought, gee, I'd love to be on one of those cadet programs. Right. And some of the bigger companies like Shell and CSR and BP probably mm-hmm. for chemical engineers had programs mm-hmm. uh, to continue your education and training after you left university. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky enough to get a job with CSR, and I was on a graduate program with them and I continued my training after I left university so I was was really pleased to get that job it was it was my dream job at the right. time. I, I didn't think I'd get it. I thought I'd stuffed it up at the interview, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I was, I was really happy when I was offered that job.
0: And so uh, I started my career at James Hardy, and I remember that. Oh, okay. You were the competitor of oh, so. Uh <laughs> And so um, was it one of these programs where you spent sort of three months in a particular division and you gradually worked through the various uh, different um, areas of the business?
1: Yeah, well, I, I was um, started, the graduates in the sugar division started over in a small factory in Perth that's okay. since been closed down, So, but you you kind of couldn't do too much damage over there, it wasn't right. that big, and was yep. only, I think we're only producing about 80 tonnes of sugar per shift, mm-hmm. so Australia consumes about a million tonnes of sugar per year, mm-hmm. so just to put it in perspective, it wasn't that big. Yep. Uh, it was a great place to learn, and uh, the... Managers and staff there uh, were used to training graduates, okay. and you went around to the different parts of the business and basically learned mm-hmm. how to do every job at the mm-hmm. at the site.
0: Mm-hmm. And over what period of time was the cadetship?
1: Uh, so I was at that factory for about three and a half years, okay. and the, it was pretty much a training role. Right, most of that time. Yeah, you know, I did some useful stuff towards mm-hmm. the end. Sure, uh, but um, it was pretty much on a. I wouldn't call it a formal graduate program for that mm-hmm. whole time, but okay. I, I, was, I was learning that whole time.
0: And were there particular things you did during that period that uh, really got you excited more about moving into the commercial elements of a business?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't that involved in the commercial stuff then. It was more around uh, designing pieces of equipment and installing them, managing shifts. Um, Getting involved in union issues, okay. uh, making the factory more efficient, mm-hmm. reducing energy consumption,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, some dealing with customers, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed the limited exposure I had to that. So yeah, I wasn't really that involved in commercial stuff. I wasn't selling any sugar at that point.
0: Sure. Uh, but three and a half years there in Perth, and then what happened after that?
1: Uh, it's, the company moved me to Melbourne, okay. a much bigger factory in Melbourne, and I was a shift manager, mm-hmm. uh, and I did some other technical-type roles there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I was there for a couple of years, and then the commercial stuff happened. I, I got offered a job in the export marketing group of okay. CSR.
0: And so how did that come about, I mean how do they find a guy who's working a very technical uh, engineering role within a business and, and put that kind of opportunity in front of him? Uh, it was
1: lucky for me, I, I didn't seek out that opportunity but there'd been a history in the company of chemical engineers who'd been through the graduate program mm-hmm. and um, done a couple of years at a bigger factory to mm-hmm. join the commercial side of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and use their skills a little bit by mm-hmm. handling some customer complaints around okay. export sugar and things like that and get involved in the uh, commercial side of, of the business.
0: And what do you think it was uh, about you that um, you know highlighted to them that no doubt there were many other people they could have picked. Why why did they <laughs> pick you, do you think?
1: Uh, still trying to work that out. I think I was I was kicking a few goals technically. Okay. You know, it's any... Uh, I was very goal oriented, mm-hmm. so I I was um, very motivated to uh, complete any project I was given. You know, I was really enthusiastic. I really loved the job, yep. and I think that you can see people who love sure. what they do, uh, which meant that when it was offered to me, I was really wondering whether it was the right thing to do or not. Okay. And actually it was quite a cut in salary, so it was a big decision to make about whether I wanted to change my career right. and go on to a salary or whether I was going to stay at the factory and work night shift and a whole lot of overtime and penalty rates etc. So yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was a difficult decision, frankly I, I wanted to move to Sydney. I, Preferred to be in Sydney rather than Melbourne. It was mm-hmm. where I spent my formative years sure. at university. So
0: moved back into the sharehouse. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was the
1: that was the thing that um, sealed the decision. Rather than you know anything about changing career, it was oh, this is something new. I'll see how it goes. Right. If it's in Sydney. I'd rather be in Sydney than Melbourne. So yeah. I ended up there.
0: Right. Okay. And so by that stage, you were pr- what about? five years into your seven years with CSR? Yeah, that's a okay. right, yeah. Okay. And so what, you know, for, for those last couple of years there, what were some of the things that you got exposed to uh, that really then started to ignite your passion to have a broader commercial leadership role?
1: Uh, the significant challenge for me, I was still lacking a lot in self-confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't sure I could do the job or mm-hmm. be successful in that area. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I just set myself goals. That's how I'd, I managed myself throughout is, you know, what do you want me to do? How do I know whether it's, I'm going to be successful or not? What are the measures around that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as, as I got things done, I, I got more confidence. But it, it really wasn't until I enrolled in an MBA degree supported by the company at the Australian Graduate School of Management mm-hmm. And I drew a lot of confidence out of that. I was, mm-hmm. I was pretty strong mm-hmm. academically mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that it, you know, I had a bit of a natural um, flair for some of those uh, commercial subjects like economics and accounting mm-hmm. and even marketing mm-hmm. and that gave me a lot of confidence mm-hmm. at work.
0: And do you think that uh, looking back now, uh, you were sort of self-aware that confidence was an issue for you?
1: Uh, not as much as I should have been. Okay. And uh, no one was really bringing it to my attention as right. well because they I pr- I probably weren't seeing it outwardly. They were yeah. probably seeing quite a confident guy. Okay. Yeah. But um, you know, in myself, I wasn't confident to, um, you know, certainly manage myself as I do now. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I I wasn't sure enough about whether I was up to some of the challenges I was given mm-hmm. or not. And it's you know, it was only through success that. I drew confidence, and you know, by getting a qualification behind me in the mm-hmm. commercial space, mm-hmm. that um, you know, I think I I came to terms with that confidence issue that was probably holding me back a bit in my earlier career.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, I've you did an executive MBA. I've done an executive MBA as well, and. Uh I mean, what's your view um, on how valued that qualification is in the Australian market? I mean, obviously, it was very good for you in terms of bringing to some confidence to what you did and and broadening your, um, at least from an academic point of view, uh, awareness of economics and other you know attributes of being a leader, but I mean, when you're considering um, the MBA qualification, do you think it's something that really um, is highly valued and, and has been highly valuable to you?
1: Uh, I think it's probably been more value to myself in terms of uh, having confidence that I can uh, that I can be really competent in that space than uh, someone that looking to employ me might um, might think about it. You know, when, when I look at others, when I'm employing people at QSL, for instance, I'm more interested in their work experience and mm. what they've done and mm. what qualifications they've got. Mm. But it gives me confidence of course if i'm putting on an engineering manager and he's good or he or she's got a mechanical engineering degree that yeah. gives you a bit of confidence about them but it's kind of a door opener rather than the thing that's going to make you employ them
0: absolutely i think that that's so true um You know, I've worked in the executive recruitment industry for now for 12 years, and uh, I speak at the uh, MBA schools. In fact, I'm speaking to the uh, Australian Graduate School of Management in about three weeks time. But um, the reality is, if I think back over 12 years, the number of times I've been uh, told our candidate must have an MBA, I'd struggle to come up with 10 times in 12 years. Uh, In Australia, very much, uh, it's this attitude of experience over qualifications, whereas I think perhaps in the US, it's pretty much taken for granted that you're, if you're an aspiring senior manager, you have to have an MBA. So, uh, do you think that Australia will ever change and, and start to adopt that attitude, or not?
1: Uh, frankly, you know, for senior management jobs here, that you get that many people applying, that mm. you've you've got to, you know, put some gates in place. Sure. And you know, for instance, the example I used before, an engineering manager. Yeah. You might get 500 applications. Wow. And the only way to cull through them is well, let's sure. get someone with a degree. Maybe maybe some of those 500 mm. are uh, you're going to be better engineering manager than the one with a degree. But mm. you know, I'm just not able to manage that. So you know, yeah. I'll, I'll use that as a gate opener, and I think mm. that's probably the way it works for most companies mm. in Australia. And even you can probably uh, comment on how recruiters approach it. But you've got to have some gates, and sure. you know, sometimes the degrees are the gates.
0: Yeah, I, I talk about it in terms of uh, you've got to find reasons to say no, yeah. uh, when it particularly, you know, when you're getting massive response rates like that uh, to get it down to a manageable level, uh, those are the kind of things that just have to be done in order to uh, be able to satisfy uh, the, uh, the candidate pool. But anyway, coming back to your situation. So, um... Uh, you, um, when you were doing your MBA uh, were you at the same time leading teams of people or was your role fairly autonomous?
1: Uh, I had a pretty autonomous role but I'd previously led reasonably big teams of people in my uh, operational job mm-hmm. Uh, and that probably helped a bit because I could um, manage my own time a lot better when mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of people reporting to you. Sure. You know, you, you've, you're you um, you're more in control of your time and managing the work that you've got to do, I found. So, you know, I think that was quite a blessing as I was doing my MBA degree. You know, we just started a family, my yeah. wife and I, so, you know, a lot of my time at home wasn't my own and mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure I had a good balance between work and life. Mm-hmm. And... um doing uni work on the train and getting to work early in the morning and um, getting assignments done was you know some of the ways i used to manage that
0: Mm -hmm. and at what point did you start to think uh, time for a change and uh the eventual move to qsl
1: uh again that just came along i haven't done a lot of career planning so i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing it's just the way it's worked for me as opportunities had been presented on a platter really rather Mm -hmm. than me seeking things out uh, at the time the QSL opportunity came up, I was looking to move overseas. I was going to join a sugar trading company in okay. London. Yep. I was interested in the sugar market and um, the world of importing and exporting of sugar. Uh, but uh, QSL was being formed, CSR and the Queensland Sugar Corporation were merging their operations into the one company mm-hmm. and there was a lot of challenges around that. And um, The guy who was looking after operations at the time, uh, he didn't want to move to Brisbane, uh, so there was an opportunity opened up there and given my previous operational background, Mm I joined QSL as the general manager of operations.
0: There was almost uh, a uh, sponsored move um, from your current employer. Yeah,
1: I was a seconded employee, uh, employee to QSL from CSR for my first couple of years in okay, the company right uh, then it just got too complicated because I was having a lot of commercial dealings with CSR and I was an employee of theirs so you know I was having to get my own staff to look after those matters and right. I couldn't be involved in them myself so it just became easier just to work directly for QSL mm-hmm. And over time I took on more responsibility I was initially looking after the supply chain. Uh, And then we have a ports business and the guy looking after that left and um, the supply chain and the ports management position were merged. So I took on some more responsibility after the first couple of years at QSL.
0: Okay. And so by that stage, uh, MBA is well and truly behind you, I imagine?
1: Yeah, it was. um I was still tr- struggling with some of the confidence issues, though, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around uh, presentation skills. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a real strength for, um, you know, one-on-one communication and small group communication that had got me by.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and we'd done union negotiations at QSL and made some quite big changes in the way we work with our workforce. But presenting to bigger groups was something I still wasn't confident in. hmm And by that time, I'd had aspirations to maybe be a CEO, not of QSL, but I didn't think that I was ready for that step, but of another organisation. And I'd recognised that the confidence issues and presentation skills to bigger groups was something that was probably holding me back and I needed to do something about that.
0: Okay, and so uh, how did you remedy that situation?
1: Uh, Well, again, I was lucky. I got a phone call from the AGSM uh, graduate school of management where I'd done my MBA and they were after instructors in Brisbane. Okay. Uh, and they, they wanted someone to instruct in marketing, which, you know, I'd, I'd done a bit of marketing, but you know, I was certainly no expert in it, Mm -hmm. uh, but I, had done really well in the MBA degree and I think got a very high mark in the marketing course, so I took it on. Okay. And. Over about three or four years I ended up instructing in four subjects for the AGSM, which really helped me a lot with my presentation skills at the end of each course the students gave a lot of very frank feedback about how you were going and I remember the first feedback was good in terms of you know overall they were happy that I'd helped them and improve their academic outcomes but they're all saying you know this blokes a bit boring, you know he's (laughs) monotone. (laughs) Um, you know, he's not exciting enough, he's right. by the book, um, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't bring enough energy to the table yep. and that was something that, you know, probably people around me were too polite to tell me
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: and once I understood that and digested it, you could start doing something about it and, sure. you know, I, I really improved my presentation skills during that time. There's still something I struggle with. You know, the listeners here will notice that, you know, it's probably a very monotone <laughs> presentation from me, uh, but I can assure them it's a whole lot better than what I was five or ten <laughs> uh, no. years ago.
0: Well, I think um, if one thing, uh, you know, it's the fact that you're quite open about so this particular challenge around confidence. And, uh, and obviously there's a certain uh, requirement to be confident in order to step into the role of CEO and do it well. But... Um, Uh, I think uh, you know there'd be many people that try and fake it till they make it whereas it sounds as though you know at some point at least you became really cognizant that uh, this is a a critical part of what I need to do in order to achieve my full career ambitions Um, you were mentioning that uh, you know around that time you'd come to a realisation then that uh, you did actually want to be a CEO so so what do you think originally ignited that um, idea for you?
1: Uh, so I get a lot of energy from leading people, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I like the P&L responsibility um, that comes with that as well and you know the sugar market is one of the most volatile agricultural markets there is so the price can go from $200 to $600 in a 12-month period right so there's a lot of opportunity to uh, manage the outcome Uh around that and you know I thought I could make a difference in that space and you know I was was starting to get a lot of confidence that um, you know I, I could get a good result as a CEO of QSL or another company sure
0: and so um, I mean you've been with QSL for 15 years but only been in the CEO role for about three and a half years so um, how far were you into QSL when you started to think hey I'm, I'm, I'm pretty keen to be a CEO
1: I actually thought I probably needed to go and get some experience elsewhere right uh, but I really love my job in operations at qsl so i I wasn't probably actively looking as Mm -hmm. much as i could have been or Mm -hmm. should have been uh and then the ceo job came up at qsl and um you know i was lucky enough to be offered it and you know had there been a
0: ceo prior to that or uh,
1: yeah yeah so we'd had a number of ceos prior to that and i'd reported to all of them and learned something from from all of them
0: and do you think were you pretty uh upfront about talking to them about your aspirations to potentially be a CEO in the future?
1: Yes, um, but you know, I don't think they saw it as a challenge to them because my mindset at the time was I needed to go and do it at a much smaller organisation before I'd be ready at QSL Mm -hmm. and you know, I started thinking that probably five or six years before I I got the job here. Mm -hmm. So you know, I probably became more ready for it as time went on Mm -hmm. uh, but you know i I was thinking about going doing it somewhere else other than qsl
0: right but you'd given up the sort of uh desire to go and live in the uk uh that you'd had earlier on
1: i still haven't given that up entirely i'd sort
0: of like to work overseas my brother's
1: um been an expat in um scotland and malaysia and thailand and now singapore Mm -hmm. and um you know I, i think that that uh Lifestyle and job challenge would be something that you sure. know I, I'd I'd get a lot from. So I haven't completely given that up, uh, but you know also happy doing what I'm doing now and mm-hmm. significantly challenged by sure.
0: it. And so I imagine um, uh, in that period between uh, thinking about becoming a CEO and actually stepping into the role here, there must have been opportunities to potentially see you leave QSL to uh, pursue that. What what do you think it was that made you? Decide it was a better move to hang out here than uh, potentially move into a smaller organisation?
1: I had some opportunities in big and small organisations, but um, the fit was important to me Mm -hmm. and whether I thought I could make a difference there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, probably the the answer always came back that you know I think I can make a bigger difference at QSL right you know there's probably a bit of fear of change in that as well to yep. be completely honest uh, so yeah I ended up staying here and I, I was always doing something different mm-hmm. you know it f- doesn't feel like I've been in the one place doing the sure. one thing for 15 years it yep. feels like I've done something different every year that I that I've been here
0: okay and um you recognised that an area of uh, uh, growth required was in your ability to speak to large audiences. What what were some of the other gaps that you felt that you needed to to fill in, in order to to be a good competent CEO?
1: Uh, Most of it was around the soft skills. Mm -hmm. You know, I was was pretty good technically, Mm -hmm. and you know, had a pretty solid base in how to develop a strategy, and you know, work out what a company should be doing. Mm Uh, But frankly, I I didn't know enough about how to get it done right? and how to involve people in the process, so they felt part of it, so that that
0: was the learning opportunity for me that I was only really partly awake to. Okay, and so uh, did you take any kind of formal training in that regard, or how did you upskill yourself?
1: Uh, A little bit of trial and error, to be honest, and a little bit of critical thinking about what had worked and what hadn't worked before. Mm -hmm. I had some good people around me as well who Mm -hmm. were giving me some good feedback about things like, you know, you're not empathetic enough, you're too hard, um, you're setting goals that we don't understand, you know, the people working for us. Aren't hearing from you enough? You know, mm-hmm. that's some of the messages I was getting back from people,
0: mainly from uh, your the more senior people in the business. Yeah, or? so
1: the, the people reporting to me were very honest with me about okay. you know yep. how I was going and what my strengths and okay. weaknesses were. Was and that
0: through a sort of a three hundred and sixty degree feedback mechanism or more informal? Uh, all way? sorts of mechanisms, right?
1: Okay. Yeah, I'd really value feedback, and I think people see that I'm quite open to it and take it on board and mm-hmm. do something about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm and about my strengths and weaknesses and mm-hmm. what I'm working on sure. so yeah. you know I find people that are reasonably comfortable to share those sort of observations okay. and it's a two-way street right I like to be honest with people yeah. about where I see them and how they might be able to improve themselves so I
0: imagine sometimes you know uh, it must be a bit hard to uh, uh, receive some of those uh, Truths or some of that feedback, it can't always be easy to be told those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, sometimes
1: it takes you a couple of weeks to take some of it on board. Right. And when you hear it from a few different sources and you know that they haven't been colluding, right. you know, you've, you you don't have a choice. Yeah. Uh, but to, to take it on board, I think it's also, you've got to get the right mix of positive and negative sure. messages. I think yeah. sometimes with people, you can really mm. focus on mm. their areas of weakness or their areas for improvement
0: without recognizing the things that they do well Mm -hmm. and in hindsight now looking back on that how much of that do you think is uh because you grew up on a farm in a small country town and uh the kind of environment that was versus perhaps if you'd grown up in the city um do you think that that had much of a bearing not only on you know your your skills in those softer areas but also your ability to take feedback and and change and adapt
1: yeah, I think it um, does come a bit from those formative years uh, that, um, you know, I, I certainly wasn't overconfident, so I was looking for feedback and for people to help me along mm-hmm. and I was really open to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, I think part of it, yeah, did come from those formative years. Okay.
0: And um, and did you have any uh, formal mentoring or executive coaching or anything like that? Uh, nothing formal. Um, you know, I
1: quite a few courses and mm-hmm. was involved in, you know, a lot of one-on-one interaction with, you mm-hmm. know, very impressive senior people who, you mm-hmm. know, I still stay in touch with a few of them. Uh, but, you know, I'd, I, I really found I'd, what worked for me was mm-hmm. something simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what also worked for me was, you know, I was, I was really keen to form my own views about things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I was critical of uh, those around me who I saw, when they were asked about, you know, for instance, what do you think about the sugar market, they'd repeat word for word what the Cargill report had said overnight. Right. Whereas, um, you know, I didn't think that sort of approach added much value. Mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd, for instance, used to read three or four reports, work out what the facts were, and then come up with my own view. Right. Wasn't always right, but, sure. um, you know, I encourage that in the people around me now that, you know it's really important to form your own view about things mm-hmm. and not be a parrot for mm-hmm. you know what someone else is saying mm-hmm. and I, I think that's that's a good way to grow and develop
0: mm-hmm. and so um, you stepped into the uh, role of CEO in 2012 What was the, the mandate at the time uh, what were you instructed to achieve?
1: Uh, this company's pretty easy it's about getting the best sugar price we can right uh and I, I thought we'd lost our focus on that a little bit at the time mm-hmm. uh you know i was um i was in my first communications with our stakeholders it was very clear that that's what i was going to be about yeah and you know everything that we were doing could be traced back to that mm-hmm. and uh that they that was i said all the goals for myself around that mm-hmm. and you know I, I wanted to make it simple. i think uh some people, people make Sometimes people make strategy too hard and they go away on strategy re- retreats and everyone tries to show each other how smart they are sure. and what a great academic strategy they come up with and they lose sight of, um, you know, some of the implementation issues about mm-hmm. how are people ever going to understand this? Right. Uh, how are they going to be convinced that it's a good thing to do? Um, and how are they going to work out what they can do
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to get on board and make it happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, So, that was something important for me as well is to really make the strategy clear. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted no more than half a dozen goals and I wanted everyone to know what they could do to help the company achieve those goals and uh, to make them all understand or help them all understand how those goals could help us get the best sugar price we could.
0: Mm -hmm. And I imagine uh, that when you're trying to achieve a goal like that there's got to be some compromise between, you know, a, a short-term desire to get the highest price possible and, and to meet the, the desires of the various stakeholders, et cetera, versus a longer-term strategy um, to ensure that whatever you do is su- as sustainable as possible. How, how do you, you know, uh, handle holding the balance of those two drivers?
1: Uh, I think some of it's about, you know, being honest and ethical,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and and if you are, the long-term and the short-term quite often lines up more than you think it might. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's some shortcuts you can do with accounting treatments and things like that that might help a short-term result but, you know, not be in the company's best interest in the long-term and also, you know, around the people issues and mm-hmm. how you manage the staff working for you. Uh, but, you know, I, I always try and keep a long-term focus and it's about long-term value and sustainability
0: Mm -hmm. and uh, interesting you talk about you know you have a view on what strategy should be like simple and uh, and and fairly transparent in uh, transparent in terms of uh, a small number of goals I imagine that that requires quite a strong um, cultural imperative in terms of how you drive that culture through the business to get everybody on the same page in that regard. What are some of the things that you've done in in that space um, in order to achieve the outcomes you've been wanting to?
1: Uh, I think while I say it's simple, you've got to involve a lot of people in it. Sure. So uh, we, we have a process here where we ask everyone in the business not the broad question about what do you think the company's strategy should be, yeah. but you know, what do you think we could be doing to improve, mm-hmm. you know, what are some of the important issues about the organisation you observe, and some leading questions around that. So mm-hmm. we get input from a whole lot of staff. And then we yeah. have a bigger, what I call our leadership team, mm-hmm. come together and formulate the strategy and you, know, you get ideas from a wider group, those people have all been involved in one-on-one discussions with everyone in the organisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the added benefit is they understand what you're trying to do when they come away and they've been part of it. Mm-hmm.
0: And so three and a bit years in the role of CEO now, if you had to hang your hat on one key achievement in that time and say, this is a really good example of you know, um, why I'm good at my job, you know, what would that be?
1: Uh, I don't take a lot of individual credit for anything here because mm-hmm. to me it's, um, you know, I can't do anything without sure. the team around me. But uh, we've outperformed the average market in every year I've been in the job. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not easy to do mm-hmm. in the last, I think, six or seven years. We've done it in five of those years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's what I judge the overall effort by Sure. Is outperforming the average market and of course we're not going to get it right every year mm-hmm. but so far every year that i've been in this job we have mm-hmm. and you know that's been our goal mm-hmm. so i've been really happy with that but I, I don't take a lot of individual credit for that I, mm-hmm. I see it as a team effort and couldn't have done it without those around sure.
0: me i mean uh, it goes without saying that uh you need to have uh, people in the team to enable you to achieve what you want but if when you think about you know your role as CEO I mean that's quite a significant achievement to uh, consistently be outperforming Um, other than what we've already discussed what do you think were some of the critical things that allowed you to get those outcomes
1: Uh, I think it's around the strategy development and implementation and Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of companies are good at coming up with really smart strategies But getting people on board with them and motivating everyone to implement the strategy I think is where some fall down and I'd experienced that myself um, in my earlier career Mm -hmm. so we we had a process here where people were first of all involved in formulating it and then we had uh, performance contracts with everyone in the organization including our EBA employees where they get paid an incentive if Mm -hmm. we get the strategy done uh, and it's really set out in clear terms for everyone here about what their job is mm-hmm. to help the company be successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, uh, I find it fascinating. I've had uh, quite a number of these conversations now. Uh, there are some people who have been extremely clear about their career plan, and and there are other people who it's kind of happened quite by happen chance that uh, they've ended up in in the role of CEO. I mean, obviously for you. Uh, uh, being self-aware and, and uh, getting a whole variety of education, both formal education in terms of your executive MBA and informal sort of self-driven professional development and so on. When you look to the future in terms of upskilling yourself for whatever is on the horizon, what are some of the things that are either you're currently doing or you're keen to do?
1: Uh, I'd like to do a bit of career planning. Okay, sure. <laughs> I think I can't rely on luck anymore. Uh, So, yeah, I'm thinking about what the next challenge Mm -hmm. might be for me and what's left to do at QSL Mm -hmm. and, you know, where I might be able to make make the biggest difference and whether that's as an executive or maybe take up a director role, Mm -hmm. Um, whether I work in Australia or overseas as, you know, some of the things that I'm – pondering for myself at the moment
0: Mm -hmm. I mean uh, sugar is you know quite a topical issue at the moment there's a whole a lot of uh, talk in the marketplace uh, so I suppose in that regard you're in a a very dynamic uh, industry Um, what are some of the ways that you uh, encourage those people in your team to be able to stay abreast of what's happening in the market and also to develop their own careers to achieve their potential
1: I don't really have to encourage people to find out what's happening in the marketplace I find they're motivated to do that and mm-hmm. you know that fits in with what we need to be what we need to do to be successful and what mm-hmm. they need to do individually to be successful uh, I try to you know my general management um, approach with the staff who report to me is uh, once a week I uh, get them to tell me what what they've been doing and um go through anything i can help them with or things they're struggling with and things that they've been successful about no i just find the conversation flows from there Mm -hmm. uh but i'm not comfortable with letting things go on for a long time so if someone was reporting to me i i wouldn't be comfortable just to catch up with them once a month and get a monthly report from them about what they're up to i i need a much more regular interaction than that and uh I don't like micromanagement Mm -hmm. but I think there's a difference between that and, you know, helping people who report to you achieve uh, what they want to. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, Um, uh, you've mentioned that career planning hasn't been a big part of your focus. We've also talked a little bit about, you know, the future, Um, there's a whole variety of opportunities out there in the market, you know, you're still a young guy, plenty of petrol in the tank. so I suppose uh, I'm interested in what do you think are the kind of things that are important for somebody who is um, now planning their next move? What are, what are the things that you'll take into consideration if you plan to be you know, more considered in terms of what's happening next? Where will you uh, start to generate your thinking from?
1: Uh, to me, I've
0: got to be doing something that I enjoy and you
1: know, something that's got some aspirational goals around it that Mm -hmm. I know I can get done. Um, That's important for me. Uh, I think broadening skill base Mm -hmm. uh, is something that, um, you know, interests me Mm -hmm. and I I feel challenged by not just doing the same thing all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, finding something you're good at and you enjoy is probably the secret to it.
0: Mm. Do you lean on the board at all in terms of assisting you to um, develop yourself professionally? Do you uh, ask them for you know quite proactive uh, involvement in that?
1: Oh, they give that to me whether I ask for it <laughs> or not, uh, and I find that really useful. Uh, but I, I probably rely on a, you know my bigger network than you know feedback from just the board of directors here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, their roles more to make sure that the company achieves our business plan and that we have the right strategy Mm -hmm. uh, rather than being too worried about my um, development opportunities Mm -hmm. but of course they get involved in that space and uh, we have some good conversations from time to time about that.
0: Okay Um, talked a lot about strategy you've talked a lot about communication I mean obviously Uh, they're parts of the role that you think are very important. If you looked at your role holistically, what would you say are the things about it that you enjoy the most?
1: Uh, I really enjoy dealing with the staff here at QSL, um, particularly the operational staff out at our port sites. Mm -hmm. That's the job I did before becoming CEO. I've got to make sure I stay out of the kitchen with our GM of ops now and um, let him manage that space. But I really enjoy that interaction and uh, our shareholders, I like uh, interacting okay. and talking to them. Sure. Um, so there's, there's a broad range there. There's big corporates mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Wilmar and uh, Bundaberg Sugar and, uh, and the small farmers and big farmers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I re- spend a lot of my time dealing with mm-hmm. the shareholders or members of the company, mm-hmm. as they're known in a company limited by guarantee like QSL. Uh, and I really enjoy that part of the role.
0: Mm. And what would you say are uh, the parts of it you like the least?
1: Uh, s- I leave the accounts up to our CFO. Right. Uh, so the nitty-gritty of all of that um, I, I'm not really involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I'm interested in the outcomes and what we can do to influence that. Uh, I, I really hate gossip and um, people talking negatively about others. I, mm-hmm. I just think that can be so damaging for an organisation, something that seems so minor. Mm-hmm. Um, can affect people um, so much. Uh, I, I think it's really important to have a uh, positive relationship with unions mm-hmm. representing employers, employees and I've seen that work really badly in mm-hmm. some parts of my earlier career and um, that's something I don't enjoy when it's not working and mm-hmm. you know, we put a lot of effort into that at QSL to make sure that we've got good relationships there and that the... Unions um, representing our staff really understand what we're all about and trust us Mm -hmm. um, as reasonable people and Mm -hmm. reasonable managers
0: of staff. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, And uh, would you say that you've achieved good results in that regard?
1: Uh, Yes, I think one of the turning points... Was um, I just saw a huge disconnect where you know this is a trading company where you know some individuals can make a big difference to the bottom line, and it's appropriate to motivate them with some financial incentive around their salary. Sure, uh, and that's normal in the in the corporate place. But I see a problem in an organisation where you do that for some and not others, mm-hmm. and and I observed that. You know, our operational staff also do some really key things. If they don't load the ships on time and they get to the customers late or with the wrong quantity or quality of sugar on board, then Mm. that's a big problem. Sure. So why shouldn't they be rewarded for getting that done? Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't they be rewarded for maintaining the plant so that um, it's got good availability and we can uh, receive sugar from uh, our clients without delaying their operations and we can deliver sugar on time to customers. So uh, we've implemented some an incentive program with all of our staff mm-hmm. where they're all motivated to help the company be successful.
0: And that's been well received by the unions and, and uh, you know your broader uh, community of stakeholders. They've recognised that uh, there's good upside from instituting those uh, kind of policies?
1: Uh, it was a struggle, to be honest, to, sure. uh, to implement it and I think there was a lot of scepticism about whether we'd find a way not to um, you know, pay the money that people were due for uh, getting their goals done. Uh, but you know, it, it's been in place for five or six years now okay. and it's been very successful okay. and um, we've got our plans done almost mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. So uh, okay. Yeah, it's it's been very successful, but uh, I think people had to see the proof of the pudding. Mm-hmm. They they weren't convinced mm-hmm. immediately that it was a, mm-hmm. the, the greatest idea.
0: How much of a part of uh, consistently outperforming the market um, year in year out do you think that that incentivising of the uh, staff has played?
1: Oh, I think without it we wouldn't have got it done. Right. So I think. Um, you can't get a business plan achieved in an organisation like QSL mm-hmm. without everyone mm-hmm. being on the bus and knowing where it's going and sure. being happy about the destination and yeah. you know being part of it. So okay. I think that's a key way of getting it done is making sure that everyone's taking their goals seriously, mm-hmm. that
0: um, they've been set, and that they're motivated to get them done. Okay, so. Um to to close out on the sort of the formal part of the conversation for those people who are listening who uh, are aspiring to uh, c-suite roles or CEO roles in the future, you know if you had to distill your own learnings into some key bits of advice, what would you say?
1: I think you've got to find out what works for you
0: mm-hmm.
1: and some of that comes by experience and, you know, working out what works for you and what doesn't. Some of it comes from getting really honest feedback from those around you. Uh, but it, I think it, it doesn't come out of one book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you, if you just read, you know, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits yeah. or something like that and go and just do that, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to work. You need to know what works for you, um, and that'll be different for everyone and depending what your strengths and weaknesses are. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took me a long time to work out what that was for me, and it's probably a different answer depending on the environment that I'm in. Sure. Uh, But at QSL, it's just been about having a very simple plan, making sure everyone understands it and is... Motivated and on board to get it done.
0: Okay. Interesting you uh, bring up, uh, you know, books. Uh, are there any particular business books you're reading now or you've read recently that uh, you would recommend?
1: Uh, I, I do read some, but, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd read more generally. Okay. Uh, and, you know, draw inspiration from a whole lot of areas. But uh, probably what do I read most is emails right and you know something I was wanting to raise around communication that I think written communication is really important mm. um, you know I think the, the some of the mantra I hear from some of our younger staff that you know we're not worried about this it's not as important as it was now we tell each other what we want on text message and we communicate but that's a form of written communication sure. yeah. and um, you know they tend to be short messages and mm-hmm. uh, Text messages and email um, can cause a lot of problems mm. in terms of what was intended sure. versus the message that was intended versus the message received, mm-hmm. particularly on sensitive matters. So, you know, I, I see that written communications really important, mm. uh, and you know, I, I learn a lot by you know reading messages um, from people around me and um, asking myself the question about you know what are they really trying to say here. Mm. Uh, and you know some of the feedback I give is around that how how good that written communication is because frankly now I think written communication is even more important than it was in my earlier career I think it's we rely much more on written communication mm. now than we ever have before it's a different type you know it tends to be shorter it tends to be more informal but you know it's it's more important as well because um, you know the intended message and the received message uh, is something that, you know, doesn't always match up.
0: For sure. Yeah. Look, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, Years ago I worked in an organisation and my boss's mantra was email is evil and uh, I've got young people working in my team and it's, you know, trying to convince them that it's so much easier to turn your chair around and actually have a conversation uh, or pick up the phone but uh, it's just a completely... Uh, Different paradigm now, isn't it? Uh, I haven't got my head around Twitter yet. How about you?
1: Yeah, I like Twitter. I I read more than I write on Twitter, much more. Uh, But I think uh, people do rely too much on email and Mm. text messages and cause a lot of problems, quite frankly. A lot of miscommunication happens Mm. because of that. And I I also encourage people to talk face-to-face or on the phone more, particularly mm. about certain issues where you're not of a meeting of mind mm-hmm. with someone and you've sure. got to sort something out. Yeah. Uh, I think you can be more convincing mm. uh, with a face-to-face or an I- interchange over the phone rather mm. than relying on a quick text message that... Mm you're wrong mate, please do it this way. You know.
0: <laughs> well, good advice Craig, I certainly agree with that. And uh, look, we're getting very much uh, to the end of the conversation. What's uh, What occupies your time when you're not at work? Uh, what are the things you like to do in your uh, spare time?
1: Uh, lots of things. Uh, I like uh, lots of sports, both watching and participating, mountain biking, snow skiing, okay. tennis, golf, I wouldn't say I'm really great at all of them, so it's probably not a career for me in any of those things because um, I enjoy it, but I'm not good at it. Right.
0: Okay. And uh, you're uh, you've got a young family or how? uh
1: yeah, I've got teenage boys, a couple of teenage boys, uh, my wife and I. So um, yeah, we're quite involved in you know helping them recognise uh, where they're path might might lead mm-hmm. uh, and you know with their studies etc
0: okay all right great well look uh, Greg uh, I really appreciate your time before we wind up is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about that you'd like to raise or anything um, in particular like you'd like to convey to the people who'd be listening to this podcast
1: uh I think it's, people can... There's, there's been some stuff, I was just thinking about your previous question about uh, academic books that I've been reading. One of, one of the topics that's been in HBR and some other public, publications is this idea of authentic leadership. Sure. And I, I really identify with that. Mm-hmm. I think particularly in Australia we're really good at picking up when someone's being fake. Right. Uh, as we call it colloquially. And uh, I think... Um, One piece of advice I could offer to any aspiring CEO or aspiring manager is, you know, be true to yourself and Mm -hmm. be honest um, because people will see through it very quickly if you're not.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Greg, thanks for your time. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. I look forward to catching up again soon.
1: Okay, great, Richard. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Okay, bye-bye. Well, that was quite a different conversation with Greg to some of the others we've had so far. But I think a really worthwhile one in that he's a guy who, early in his careers, aspired to run a large factory and yet has enabled himself to get to the point where he's running a very successful business as managing director and CEO. And one of the things that was quite refreshing is the fact that Greg was very open about the challenges he faced. Uh, his self-confidence, his ability to speak to large groups, uh, his ability to be an authentic leader. And I think whilst many uh, senior executives and CEOs would try and hide those areas of their uh, capability, Greg instead decided to wear it on his sleeve and by doing so was able to set the goals necessary to compensate for those weaknesses and still achieve great outcomes in his career and i think that for people listening to this podcast the fact that greg was so real is particularly valuable because it gives you a sense that you know it's not an innate quality to be a ceo these skills can be learned and weaknesses which potentially you think are inhibiting you from achieving your full potential Uh, can be overcome by staring them uh, in the mirror and uh, working out the ways to upskill yourself and get those people around you to help you to overcome your own particular challenges. So I thank Greg for being so honest and I'm sure the listeners will too. Thanks for your attention for another Aratay podcast. It's been great having you here and I look forward to uh, speaking with you again via this medium or face-to-face In the meantime, have a fantastic week. Bye.